0: Well, please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10. We're continuing working our way through the Gospel of Luke. As you turn there, I just want to make a little special announcement here, a little, little aside. This week, I believe tomorrow, May 2nd, 2011, marks the 400th anniversary of the first printing of the King James Version of the Bible. I'm going to be reading uh, from our special reading this morning from the King James Bible. Really, to understand the King James Bible and how monumental an event uh, this is to to celebrate, how monumental an event it is to have a a version of Scripture in our, our English language, I want to take you back even before the publication of the King James Bible to a man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale lived from 1494 to 1536. He was trained in Greek and Hebrew and began to work on the first English translation of the New Testament in the 1520s. That is the first translation of the Bible in English that came from the original, it was translated from the original Greek manuscripts. They begin this in 1523 and he he said to a religious person at the time, he said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more scripture than thou dost. In other words, his purpose was that the common person would be able to access and understand God's Word. And Tyndale created an amazing translation. He coined new words in the English language that we still have today, words like Passover, Peacemaker, Scapegoat, and even the word Beautiful. He created this amazing translation, and he was kidnapped in 1535, and he was burned at the stake for heresy. The charge against Tyndale was for producing a corrupt translation of the Bible, but in reality, Tyndale had produced a masterpiece. It contained phrases that we still use today also, like the powers that be, my brother's keeper, "the, the salt of the earth. Now, that was Tyndale's translation, and whenever the King James Version came along, began at the dawn of the 17th century, and there were competing translations in England. And King James uh, established this committee to work on a new translation of the Bible. But in reality, what the translators did is they went back time and time again to Tyndale and used his translation. King James had gotten involved in the process. They were supposed to retain the wording of another Bible. They didn't do that. They were supposed to not use marginal notes. They didn't do that either. Instead, the translators, the King James Version, produced a masterpiece. Uh, One person has said this, uh, Tyndale, his simple directness, his magical simplicity of phrase, his modest music, have given an authority to his wording that has imposed itself on all later versions. Nine-tenths of the King James Bible is still Tyndale, and the best of the King James Bible is is still his. It also had an incredible influence on our language, it normalized English and stabilized. In other words, like uh, centurion, crucify, apostle, resurrection, wise men, lunatic, parable, all these come from the King James version of the Bible. And I want to read to you uh, the, uh, some words from the preface that the King James translators put. Before they began their translation of the King James Bible, they they put these words, and it was designed to, to help us understand what was going to take place in the future. It helps us understand what they viewed their, their uh, work as being all about. They wrote this as they began the King James Bible. To those who point out defects in our translation, we answer that perfection is never attainable by man, but the Word of God may be recognized in the very meanest translation of the Bible, just as the King's speech addressed to Parliament remains the King's speech when translated." into other languages than that in which it was spoken, even if it not be translated word for word and even if some of the renderings are capable of improvement. To those who complain that we have introduced so many changes in relation to the older English versions, we answer by expressing surprise that revision and correction should be imputed as false. The whole history of Bible translation in any language is a history of repeated revision and correction. So our our church usually uses the English Standard Version as the version that we preach and study from, and, and uh, that I read through uh, most often on my own. But this morning, I'm very—I want to express as a church our our gratitude for the men and women that God has raised up through history that have worked to preserve God's word, and particularly for those of us in here whose uh, native tongue is English. I hope that we would express uh, express a gratitude to God for the people that he has raised up, often at risk of their lives, when we think of Tyndale, martyred because of their desire to provide God's word for us in our own language. And so I, I hope there's a, a gratefulness to God this week as you think about this being the 400th anniversary of the translation, the first publication of the King James translation. So let me ask you to stand not in honor of a translation, but in honor of God, as we read this morning. I will be reading from the King James Version of the Bible. And I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 16 of chapter ten of Luke chapter 10. And we'll be looking during our sermon at, at verses 10 through 16. But let me begin in verse 1. After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them the harvest truly is great but the laborers are few pray ye therefore that the lord of the harvest therefore that the lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest go your ways behold i send you forth as lambs among wolves carrying neither purse nor scrip nor shoes and salute no man by the way and into whatsoever house ye enter first say peace be to this house and if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, unto thee Bethsaida! For if the mighty works have been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. And he that despiseth me despiseth him who sent me. May God be glorified through his word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. And Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to read it. We thank you that we have the opportunity to understand it. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work work within our hearts, that we would understand it more and more fully. We pray that you would help us to be good stewards of this resource that you've entrusted to us, and we pray that our hearts would be open as we study it this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we are here in Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 16, and and two weeks ago we began studying this passage, and we're talking about the eternal consequences of of rejecting the gospel. And as we started talking about the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel, what we said is, as we're talking about these consequences, what we're saying is that what a person does right now in this life in response to the good news that Jesus Christ has come, paid the penalty for their sin, died in their place, and that a person can receive life through faith in him, what a person does with that message right now in this life has consequences not only for this life, and the consequences for this life are also profound, but what someone decides to do with that message has consequences also in the life to come. What a person does with the gospel message has eternal consequences. And as we mentioned two weeks ago, this is a very timely passage for our church to be considering As many of you know, this is a very controversial issue in the evangelical church right now, the issue of eternal judgment, the issue of whether or not there is a hell, whether or not there are people who will spend eternity in hell facing conscious eternal torment. That's a big issue in the church right now, and so I believe it's providential that we're looking at these verses this week and several weeks ago. Mike Chambers gave me a Time Magazine article last week, and the Time Magazine article made a very interesting statement. It said that there is perhaps in the church today a fundamental altering about what it means to be a Christian, a fundamental altering in understanding about what it means to be a Christian. The the Time Magazine's article's point, I think, is a valid one, that in evangelical churches today— there's a a blurring of the lines of of very stark, uh, very important doctrinal issues, things that used to be very clear the evangelical church is very muddy on today. And the question that I had as I read this article is, is, why is that the case? What allows the church to fundamentally alter doctrines that have been taught so clearly throughout church history and in God's Word and even in North American churches just several decades ago? What's taken place? And what I believe has taken place is that there has been a fear on the part of many in the church, many leaders in the church, to boldly proclaim the truths of God's Word, the uncomfortable truths of God's Word. And because there's been a lack of willingness to do that, even a fear of doing that, the result has been that some very strange theologies have crept into the church. And because people lack biblical understanding of these important truths and how to rightly understand things like the eternal judgment of God, they will fall prey to false teaching. It reminds me of what happened to my yard. In 2006, we laid down some sod in our front yard. And we were told to water that sod. And so we watered that sod, and there was this this beautiful grass that grew. In fact, in the summer of 2006, if you had gone down my street, I think you would have agreed that my lawn was one of the greenest lawns on the street. And in 2007, that continued. We watered our our lawn occasionally at the right times. And in 2007, we had a a beautiful lawn. Uh, And in 2008, things took a turn for the worse. Uh, we didn't water our lawn quite as often as we should have. Things got very hot at times, and we'd begin to develop some brown spots in our yard. Now, I think it would be very nice if, when you developed a brown spot in your yard, if new grass would grow there. But unfortunately, what grows in dead spots on your lawn? Weeds. <laughs> and these weeds begin to take over our yard because we hadn't cultivated our lawn properly. And so it is in the church, as churches and church leaders fail to adequately proclaim God's truths and the more difficult parts of God's truths, as they fear to do that or have a reluctance to do so, what creeps in? Not new, nicer, grass, not new, better theology, but thorns and thistles and false teaching. So what I want us to do this morning is to continue what we started two weeks ago, we, we said there's going to be four statements that we consider f- that help us understand rightly the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we began looking at those four statements two weeks ago. We're going to kind of review those and continue this morning. The first statement that we looked at two weeks ago, as we saw that there are real eternal consequences to rejecting Jesus Christ and his good news, is this. Uh, number one, people must know People must know that there are eternal consequences for rejecting the gospel. In fact, we read this in verse 10 of Luke 10. Verse 10, Jesus has been talking to these disciples, these 72 disciples, about proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming God's peace. And then he says in verse 10, But if you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, verse 11, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. But no, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near." We talked about two weeks ago how Jews, whenever they would leave a Samaritan town, would do a similar thing. They would kind of shake off the dust from their feet, telling that Samaritan town, we have no part of you. You may think that you're part of us. You may think that you're tied into the Jewish religion. But we just want to be really clear here, no, you're not. There's a separation between us and your failure to accept the other revelation of God, the rest of the Old Testament that we would call today, the, the prophets and the, the historical record, because you've failed to accept that, you failed to rightly accept God, therefore we have no part with you. What Jesus is telling these 72 Jews as they go into these Jewish communities to do is something very offensive. He's telling them to tell these other communities, we have no part with you because you've rejected the message of Jesus Christ Even though we have many similarities, you've failed to accept the Messiah, therefore we are separating ourselves from you. We saw people need to know the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel. They need to know that this is a big deal. One of the most frustrating things for me is um, whenever I'm upset at someone and they don't know it. A few weeks ago, a few months ago, I I called someone that, that there had been kind of an issue between us, and I, I, I said, hey, I just want just to clear the air and, 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 and talk about what's, what, what happened. And they said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, what do you mean you don't know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm really angry, right? It's dangerous not to know that things have, there's been a rift in a relationship, and it's really dangerous if there's been a rift in a relationship with God. There's been a separation between you and God, and you're completely unaware of it. We talked two weeks ago about how many people don't even know that there's been something that's entered their relationship with God that separates them from him. And we talked about our need to make sure that people know that if they've rejected Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are eternal consequences to that. That was the first truth we looked at two weeks ago. The second truth is this. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. We spent most of our time two weeks ago. We'll spend most of our time this morning here as well. A second truth that we need to understand as we think about the eternal consequences is that people who do not receive the gospel will face God's wrath on the day of judgment. Look again at the text, verse 12, Jesus begins to describe the the consequences of rejecting this gospel. Not only do you need to let people know that there are consequences, you need to let them know what they are. Verse 12, Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, that is the day of judgment of God, for Sodom than for that town. And he talks about these other other Jewish towns that rejected him. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the mighty works done in you have been done entire in inside and, and they would have repented, but it will be more bearable for those cities, he says, on the day of judgment, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. And so we looked at some statements to help us understand this the second truth, that people who do not receive the gospel will face God's wrath on the day of judgment. If you're taking notes, you can kind of turn over that back page contains eleven statements that I think really help us to rightly understand what's meant by God's wrath and and understanding God's judgment. Statement number one, as we think about this truth, statement number one is that there is a coming day of judgment for all people. There is a coming day of judgment for all people. We looked at Romans chapter two, and I won't read all of that, but Romans chapter two, verse six, says that God will render to each person according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Number one, there's a coming day of judgment for all people. What do we need to understand here? We need to understand scripture speaks of a a day of the Lord. In fact, scripture has spoken of several days of the Lord that are leading to this ultimate day of the Lord. And it's this time when God will deal with with all injustice. Every wickedness that has ever been perpetuated on earth will be dealt with on the day of the Lord. And sometimes in human history, evil has been committed, atrocities have been committed, and it seems like they've gone unnoticed. There have been murders that have taken place that people have never found out about. There have been uh, wrongs that have been committed, there have been ethnic sins, there have been all sorts of, of immorality that's taken place, and it seems under the sun today that th- this wickedness persists in our culture, it persists in the world, and nobody is doing anything about it, and nobody is capable of doing anything about it. What do we see in Scripture, though? Scripture assures us, hey, there is a coming day of the Lord, and on that coming day of the Lord, every sin Every atrocity, every every bit of wickedness that has ever existed in the world will be dealt with. And if you think you have a problem with evil and wickedness, your problem with evil and wickedness is nothing compared to the problem that a holy, righteous God has with evil. There's a coming day of judgment for all people. That day, that day is coming. That's the first statement to think about as we think about the judgment of God. Second statement, number two, Christ will judge all people. Number two, Christ will judge all people, and he'll do this under the authority of God the Father. If you ask the average person, tell me something about Jesus, they'll probably communicate the idea that Jesus saves, right? Jesus is uh, loving and Jesus came to, to save the world, and that is an exactly true statement. The question is, Jesus came to save from what? <laughs> There's a uh, great story that R.C. Sproul tells about whenever he was an unbeliever. He was an unbeliever walking across the college campus, and someone came up to him and came up to him and said, "Brother, have you been saved?" And R.C. Sproul responded, "Saved from what?" <laughs> Jesus saves, yes, but Jesus saves from what? Jesus saves us from the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. So in a very real sense, Jesus saves us from himself. Jesus is coming and Christ is coming again, and whereas his first mission was a mission of rescue, delivering us from the wrath of God, He will also come, He will also come to judge. We see this in John chapter 5, verse 26. It says the Father has life in himself and has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he is, verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. That's John 5, 26 and 27. Acts 10, 42 says that God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, or Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So there's a coming day of judgment, number one. Number two, Christ is going to be the one who judges all people. Third, third, Christ will judge unbelievers on the basis of their deeds. Revelation 20, you might want to turn there, the last book of the Bible, uh, the third chapter from the end, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we'll, we'll look there again, but Revelation 20 is talking about the end the day of the judgment of God and all people appearing before the great white throne of God all unbelievers and verse verse 12 John sees the dead great and small standing before the throne and and books were opened and another book was opened and the book it was the book of life and the dead were judged by these other books what was written in the books according to what they had done verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's going to be a coming day when all people are judged by their conduct. All unbelievers are judged by their conduct, and if their name isn't found in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, you may say, well, there's going to be some things in those books that I'm not too happy about, but I like my chances, right? I've been bad, but not terrible. That would be great if the judgment was going to be based on how well the people sitting on the row with you have done in life. In other words, if you're, you know, you're sitting next to kind of a guy that you know, man, eh, it's got some issues, I know who's thinking it right now. Uh, you think well, I'm going to do okay. I'm going to do okay. Not great, not, not as good as this person on my left, the person on my right, I got him covered. The problem is, there's a different criteria by which you're being judged not how well the people around you have done, but you're being judged compared, you ready, to the holiness of God. This past week, our little girl, our oldest daughter, turned 10 years old. 10 years I've been a parent for a decade. I know a lot of you are ahead of me, but that just seems like a long time for me. She received as a birthday gift a little thing of of clay, and she's doing these different clay animals and things like that. As I saw her working with the clay, I was reminded of my own childhood. When I was about her age, I received this assignment from the teacher. It was to make a barnyard animal. And so I said, well, I'll use this clay in the classroom or whatever, and I'll take it home, and I'll make a barnyard animal. And the teacher said, sounds great. It's due tomorrow. Okay. I went home, and it it didn't go very well. I, I found out I am not very gifted working with clay In fact, uh, it was so terrible, like an hour into it, I had the only barnyard animal that I had created was a snake, right? You know, you just kind of roll it out. I've got a snake. And my mom said, that's not going to cut it. My parents, this this is true, my parents had to call the teacher that night and say, look, our kid, (laughs) not that great, Uh, can he have a couple extra days and, and do something else and maybe like copy a picture from a book? Sure. Now, that's my ability with clay. Hannah has done some really cool things, and, and uh, you know, I'm a proud dad, and so I, I think she's a genius, and she's done some, just some neat creations, and if, if she was going to be judged on how great she is compared to her dad, she would be like Michelangelo, right? Now, imagine I called the Chicago Museum, and I said, hi, uh, yes, my name is Daniel Bennett, I'd like to have an exhibit for my daughter. She makes koala bears with clay. I think you'll like it. How well would that go over? Not very well. Why? Because there's an entirely different standard to get into a museum than there is to, than to be better at your dad working with clay. It's it's a whole different standard, a whole different level of ability. And so it is with God. We're Unbelievers are going to be judged on the basis of their deeds. And it's not, well, you did a lot better than that guy next to you. It's how well did you conduct yourself on earth compared to the perfect holiness, and righteousness of God. How well do you think that's going to go? Not well. That's the standard of righteousness. Number four, number four, we, we saw last week that believers will actually assist God in that judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul says, do you not know that saints will judge the world? if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try uh, trivial cases? In other words, believers are going to participate in that judgment. As we think about the practical implications of this, we didn't get a chance to talk very much about this last week. Let me just make one other comment to to maybe help you out here. When you are wronged by other people, let's say that an unbeliever wrongs you. And let's assume, and this isn't always the case, I'm sure you'd agree with me, let's assume you've done nothing to deserve it. Generally, you have, but let's assume that someone is upset at you and you've done absolutely nothing to do it. In fact, they're upset at you simply because you're a believer professing your faith in Jesus Christ. What's the right way to respond whenever a person wrongs you? Think about what awaits the person who does wrong against you. Again, let's assume that they have, you have been like pure as the the new driven snow, and they have just been horrible to you. Option number one is that that person will someday fall under the wrath of God. And do you really want to get in between a person and the wrath of God? Or do you want to pray for them and hope that they will experience the same mercy that you have? Option number two, and I hope this would be your heart, option number two is that that person is going to repent of that sin, place their faith in Jesus Christ, and the blood of Christ will cover that wrong done against you. And who are you, who are we, to take offense at a sin that Christ himself has dealt with? Who are we to take offense at a sin that the blood of Christ has covered? This truth that you and I are going to assist in the judgment of unbelievers in that day, the day of God's judgment, should be very sobering to us, should cause us great humility, and should cause us to treat others who wrong us with great kindness and patience. The fifth thing about the judgment of God that I think is important for us to understand is that believers, number five, believers will not face God's condemnation. Romans chapter 8, right after Romans chapter 7, that That talks about uh, the provision of Jesus Christ who saves us from the wretched people that we are. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believers will not face God's condemnation. We will not face the judgment of God. There will be no eternal punishment for our sin. The sixth truth is also important for us to think about though. The sixth truth is this. Christ will judge believers on the basis of their deeds. Even though we do not face the condemnation of God, you and I, and this again should be another sobering truth, you and I will be accountable for what we've done. We saw this in Romans chapter 2 that we've already looked at. We also see this in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, Paul says in verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is a very important truth for us to consider. As we think about the day of judgment, as we think about this future time when God will deal with all wickedness that has transpired since the beginning of the creation of the world, you and I are going to have to give an account for the things that we've done. Every thought that we've had, every action that we've committed, everything that we're supposed to do that we didn't do, every time we fell short of God's commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, might. every time we've done that, we're going to have to give an account. The wonderful thing is that Christ's blood is going to cover all of our transgressions, and we we will not face any condemnation, but we will, I believe, face loss of reward. And our ability, I believe, to enjoy the eternal state, our ability to comprehend the glory of God into eternity is going to be affected by how we've lived here and now. There are eternal consequences to the unbeliever for rejecting the gospel message. There are consequences to the believer. There are eternal consequences to the believer for failing to live out the gospel message, aren't there? You and I are training ourselves now to enjoy eternity. And though we face no condemnation from God, we do face loss of reward. That's why the sixth truth here, Christ will judge believers on the basis of their works. Number seven, number seven. there are two ultimate destinies for all human beings. Two ultimate destinies for all human beings. Matthew 25, Jesus t- tells a parable. He's talking about the final judgment Verse 31 of Matthew 25, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world and he allows them to enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Whenever I was young, I, I used to enjoy reading those choose-your-own-adventure books. As you read through these choose-your-own-adventure books, I love kind of reading through them, and, and there's all these, like, they're, they're I don't know, five or six or seven different endings to the story you could arrive at. That's not the case for the human heart, the soul, who we are in our our essence, our being. There are two options available to every human being, eternal life or eternal death, destruction. That's a hard truth, but a biblical one. Number eight. Number eight, unbelievers. Unbelievers will be sent to a place of eternal conscious torment. Two options, two destinies for all human beings. And this is a very unpleasant thing for me to even have to say out loud, and yet it's God's word, and so it's also a precious truth. Unbelievers will be sent to a place of eternal conscious torment. say, Daniel, it'll be torment. Yes. And then it'll be eternal, like forever. Yes. And they'll be aware of it. It'll be be conscious. And, and, And yes. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, because Scripture tells us. We just looked at Matthew 25, and Matthew 25 tells us that just as the life for the righteous is eternal so is the destruction for the unrighteous these these he says in verse 46 go away into eternal punishment that's Matthew 25 46 we've also we also see it in Hebrews chapter 6 Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2 the writer of Hebrews is talking about these different teachings and he talks about the teaching of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment that is this this uh, judgment continues forever. This eternal conscious torment is also described in the book of Revelation as we, we th- look at the end of all things. Revelation chapter 14, John is, is writing and he says in verse 9, "...another angel, a third, follow them, saying with a loud voice, "'If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand,' He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And listen to this. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And you say, well, forever and ever. He goes on. Yes. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. What is he saying here? Look, a person at some point, makes the decision not to worship Jesus Christ, not to respond to the gospel message. This person instead, in the book of Revelation, worships the beast. And in Revelation, we see that the torment, the punishment, is an eternal punishment. There's no rest, day or night. It's eternal, it's torment, and they're conscious as they experience it. Revelation 21 tells us, This torment is not only for those in the tribulation period who worship the beast. It's for all whose names are not found in the book of life. We looked at Revelation chapter 20, how all are judged according to what they've done. And verse 14 of Revelation 20 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You say, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a second chance. No, Revelation 21 talks about the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Verse eight of Revelation 21 says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in, in the lake that burns with, with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I don't know how you get around The biblical teaching that unbelievers will be sent to a place of eternal conscious torment. Scripture's teaching is extremely, frighteningly clear on this point. It's also a point, I, I don't know how your soul responds to this, but I know how my soul responds to this truth. It's, it's troubled by it. Paul wrestles with it. In, Ro, in Romans chapter 9, right? he says, I, I have unceasing anguish in my heart as he considers the, the destiny of people that he loved, his kinsmen according to the flesh. I, I can't stand before you this morning and say, I, I figured out all the, intellectual, uh, uh, all the intellectual aspects of hell and, and I'm, I'm totally emotionally okay with everything. I'm not. It, it troubles me. But I know that the ultimate source of my troubled heart with this doctrine lies not with God, but with me. Let me read you something that Jonathan Edwards wrote, the great Puritan. And this is uh, John Piper quoted Jonathan Edwards. And here's what Jonathan Edwards says as, as as he talked about hell He said, The crime of one being despising and casting contempt on another being is proportional, uh, proportionally more or less heinous as he was under greater or less obligation to obey him. In other words, if you fail to honor someone, that failure to honor them is, is more is worse if you had a greater obligation to love them. So, for example, let's say there's a child. And this child has a, a mom who has done everything she could to provide for this child. She's given of herself to provide food and clothing and shelter for this child. That child has an extremely high obligation to love his mother, doesn't he? And it's, it's a, a crime for him to fail to honor and obey her. Now let's say this child also has a teacher. And this teacher loves the child and has cared for the child through instruction. But and the child has an obligation to honor that teacher, but it's less than their obligation to love their parent. Let's imagine that someone kidnaps that child and holds them for ransom. How much of an obligation do they have to love and honor that person? Well, none at all. The crime crime of failing to honor someone and the punishment that it deserves is proportional to how much honor you owe them. And Edwards goes on and says, Now imagine there is a being to whom we owe infinite worship and honor and love. The crime of not loving a being who deserves our infinite love and honor and worship is deserving of an infinite punishment. It's hard to comprehend in our sinful state. The amount of worship and glory that God desires, and therefore that's one of the reasons it's so hard for us to comprehend how great our trespass is against him. Jonathan uh, John Piper goes on and says this, one key difference between Edwards and our contemporary spokesman, that is those who abandon the idea of the historical biblical idea of hell, is that Edwards Piper says, Edwards was radically committed to deriving his views of God's justice and love from God. But more and more, it seems that contemporary evangelicals are submitting to what makes sense to their own moral sentiments. This will not strengthen the church or its mission. What is needed is a radical commitment to the supremacy of God in determining what is real and what is not. Piper is exactly right on that point. Number nine, number nine. There is there will be degrees of punishment based upon one's access and response to God's revelation. Here in Luke chapter ten, we see that these different cities receive different amounts of condemnation based upon how they responded to the revelation that God gave them. In other words, Tyre and Sidon didn't have the gospel message proclaimed to them. It's going to be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than it is for these Jewish cities who had God's revelation and rejected it and spurned it. This is a hard truth to understand, and I don't think what what it means is, yeah some parts of hell won't be so bad. What it does mean is that a person is more accountable the more revelation that God has given them. The more revelation that one has to, and the more access to God's word, the greater culpability they have to respond rightly to that gospel message. Now, young people, those of you who are growing up in a, a Christian home, a home with a mom and dad who love God, this should be a really scary truth for you guys or a truth that causes you to really fear God. Parents, it should cause you to fear God as well, right? But, but kids, just kind of pay attention here. You're growing up in a, in a home with a mommy and daddy who are telling you about Jesus. And teenagers, you've grown up in a home with a mom and dad who've tried to show you that the truths about Jesus. And you're going to be responsible to God with what you do with the information mom and dad have given you, or grandma, or, or your aunts, or uncles, or whoever has, has proclaimed God to you. There are degrees of punishment that are based on how we've responded to the truth that's been given us. Let me read you from Hebrews chapter 10. He's talking about how people who didn't obey the law of Moses died. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? In other words, some of you have grown up in a home where God's word has been proclaimed to you, mom and dad have told you Jesus Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood for your forgiveness, how much more accountable are you going to be to God for what you've done with that message, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle, friends have given you? Number 10, number 10 here, at this point in time, and I've touched on this already, but at this point in time, it's difficult to fully comprehend the reality and justice of hell. In other words, I don't think that you and I can understand the depth of God's holiness. I don't think we can understand the depth of our depravity. And I think that causes us to have a hard time understanding the reality and justice of hell. I have a hard time with hell, not because I understand God's holiness so fully, but because I understand it so little. And the greater I grasp God's holiness, the more right hell seems. And the greater I grasp my own depravity, the more right it seems for me to have been in hell as well. The greater sense of gratitude we have to God for his salvation. Number 11, again related to all of this, number 11, God is perfectly just and right in all his judgments. God is perfectly just and right in all his judgments. And by the way, you are not <laughs> i am not let me give you some bible verses that may comfort you first peter 1:17 and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. God calls us to submit to his perfect, just decrees. Well, let's move on here very quickly to our last two points. I told you we'd spend most of our time on this this second one because I think it's so crucial to understand what's meant by the judgment of God. Number three, though, uh, people can be saved from God's wrath through repentance. The implication here is that if Tyre and Sidon had received the message that they had received, they would have repented. They would have responded to the gospel rightly and would have been saved from God's wrath. Now, what is repentance? We've talked about this again and again as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. Repentance is acknowledging something as sin, having a heartfelt sorrow about that sin, and making a commitment to turn from it. The person that rightly understands God's will turns from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ. It's important if we're going to proclaim this truth that there is a hell and this idea that a person can experience eternal conscious torment because of their sin. If that's what you believe, you are under an incredible moral obligation, a divine obligation to proclaim how a person can be rescued from that wrath. If you believe that Scripture is true, and if you believe that some people face the possibility of an eternity without God, can you imagine the, uh, the responsibility that you have to proclaim how they can be rescued from it. A person can be rescued from God's wrath through repentance, turning from sin, turning to faith in Jesus Christ. Those aren't two separate acts. They aren't works. The repentance is letting go of sin and turning to faith in Jesus Christ, saying this path that I've been following leads to death. I'm making a commitment to turn from it and turn to life in God through faith in Jesus Christ. Last truth, number four. People have only two potential responses to the gospel. Look at verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who's rejecting me rejects him who sent me. If a person hears the gospel message that we proclaim and responds to it rightly, they receive eternal life. They fail to respond the message that we've proclaimed that's God's message they've not rejected you and me only they've rejected Jesus Christ and a person who's rejected Jesus Christ has rejected God I can remember being in college or getting ready to enter college being in high school and maybe some of you are in high school here this morning and you've been told by your counselors that this is a very important time in your life and the decisions you make now will affect you for the rest of your life. And if you decide to, to go to this college, it will affect your destiny. If you decide to enter this work uh, right out of high school, it will affect this destiny. If you do this co- and you've, you, you're overwhelmed with all these decisions you have to make. And it's true that a lot of the decisions you make do affect the rest of your life. But your life is also pretty wide open still. But. This message of the gospel contains only two potential responses. One response leads to eternal life, the other to eternal judgment. The person who receives Jesus Christ receives God. The person who rejects the gospel rejects Jesus Christ and rejects God. Brothers and sisters, my prayer to God as we've been thinking through this, this passage would be that your heart would be full of faith, that you would respond to the gospel message, and embrace Jesus Christ if you've never done so. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ, you would feel it upon yourself, incumbent to warn others of the wrath to come, proclaim to them the good news of Jesus Christ, and in your own life, live out the life-changing message of the gospel. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for the good news of your Son, Jesus. We pray you would help us as we seek to be obedient to you. We pray that you would cause us to live out the gospel with great joy. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.